Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how's it going? Uh, it's going well, John. A lot going on. We've got AFCON kicking off, Asian Cup, the NFL playoffs over here are about to start. So just so much going on, so much to be excited about. And speaking of excitement, we have yet another exciting guest here on the TIFO Football Podcast because this week I was lucky enough to talk to Alex Stoyle, who is a sports psychologist who works for a company called Optimize Potential. We had a lot to talk about in terms of the more mental aspects of football. And Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you take away from it? Well, I think the timing of this episode is great because, you know, one of the biggest storylines right now is Jaden Sancho's loan to Dortmund from Manchester United. And we saw that relationship break down between Sancho and Ten Hag over time. Alex talks about what the role of a sports psychologist plays in regards to communication between managers and players and whether managers even consult sports psychologists in order to to nurture their relationship with players. Yeah, and then as we say, it's just such an important aspect of modern football that it's really good that we could have Alex on. And as always, the best thing for us to do is to just switch over to that conversation. So the next voice you will hear is me talking to Alex Stoyle, the sports psychologist. Alex, it's so good to have you on today. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. I think the best place for us to begin is to give a little bit of context so our listeners know exactly what it is that you do. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you ended up doing it. So I am a sports psychologist in training. Uh, I am currently uh, doing a doctorate uh, at the University of Portsmouth, uh, which is kind of looking at a few, a couple of different topics. Um, and then I also am a practicing sports psychologist working across a number of different sports both with organizations and kind of individual sort of private clients who, mm. who come my way so when you say that you're a sports psychologist in training does that mean you start out life as a regular psychologist and then specialize so there's there's different ways to get to where you want to go if you want to be a sports psychologist so um from the kind of starting with undergrad you can either do a sort of you do the sports and then you add the psychology or you kind of do the psychology and add the sport um, and you do so you kind of either do undergrad in that then there is a sort of a one-year master's in sports and exercise psychology uh, and then after that there's a sort of a, a, a training period which is kind of maybe akin to sort of being sort of junior doctor or a trainee solicitor so you're kind of on the job you've got supervision to look over you I'm doing that through my doctorate um, but there's a couple of other other options out there which are the sort of I guess perhaps the more mainstream options through a couple of organizations who oversee that process so did you do psychology or sports for your undergrad uh so i did psychology but through a rather circuitous route so uh to get to where i am today i actually spent 10 years working in a in a completely separate field in a sort of corporate uh, a corporate world having studied history as an undergrad and then i did psychology to kind of convert into this hmm. into this role I wanted to begin with a bit of a weird question. It's a little bit of a, um, a highfalutin question, perhaps. But we had a fitness and conditioning expert on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I posed the question, what is physicality? Just a really broad, gen general question about the topic that we are talking about. And I thought we could do the same with you and ask the question, what is psychology? So, again, it's, it's quite a difficult question to answer, perhaps, but I think it's going to be fundamental to everything that we're going to talk about today. So I thought it was really nice to just set the bedrock of the conversation by talking about what is psychology psychology so how would you answer that question so it's, i love a highfalutin question so no, no need to apologize <laughs> right. there um i think most kind of definitions kind of come out somewhere around sort of like a study of the mind and behavior um and i think those two different points are, are, are quite important because it's, it's not just quite unquote just the, the sort of thoughts and feelings and emotions it's then also the sort of the actions that are connected with those uh, and so obviously within a sporting scenario that can present a sort of decision making and then the actual execution skill as well that maybe come with 
the certain kind of emotionals and uh, emotions and thoughts that have have potentially sort of underpinned those. Yeah, because I think it's, it's quite an interesting topic because I think everyone sort of has a general idea of what they think psychology is. But I guess in a field like psychology, the preconceived ideas that people bring to what's happening when you're dealing with them as patients can actually impact the way that the, the treatment goes so how how important would you say that that you know the the base level understanding of what people have of psychology actually impacts what it is that you do so i, I think it's a great question because sometimes uh, very often if i'm working in a group scenario I'll, I'll put the question to them and i'll sort of say what do you think psychology or sports psychology is and that's when you get words like mindset and mentality and things like that there's definitely evidence to show that in particular i guess in one-to-one stuff the more that you believe that the thing is going to work the more likely it is that it will so having that kind of rapport with a client early on and and sort of potentially even trying to you know you, you never want to feel like you're sort of having to necessarily kind of sell yourself too much but actually if you can give someone something quite early on in the sort of the process of working with them that they can take away try out and see some small gains from that that's always helpful because then if you do need to go into a slightly sort of more prolonged work with them where maybe it's a little bit harder to make those sort of marginal gains mm-hmm. at least they've already got that they've got that emotional kind of buy-in to the process already so yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting one this isn't on the running order but there are lots of different types of approaches to psychological treatment uh could you sort of give us an overview of, of, of roughly <laughs> obviously it doesn't need to be exhaustive but how how different is it going to be um for particularly in the world of sports anyway that you're going to see a huge um spread of different types of psychologists or do the sports psychologists tend to follow one approach so a really a good question uh it's it's a, but a tricky one because so depending on how how high fluting you want to go with it um yeah within psychology there are definitely a pretty wide array of different sort of approaches and actually you can get quite philosophical with that quite quickly you know you can get into the nature of sort of the nature of truth and learning <laughs> and whether reality is subjective or objective and things like that um i think generally within sports psychology because of the nature of the work where the people want the people tend to be quite solution focused time is very often pretty pretty limited uh, and also potentially budgets as as well um it probably leans towards certain sort of slightly i guess perhaps you might term them sort of newer but also maybe kind of more slightly scientific based um sort of approaches so cbt so cognitive behavioral therapy then some of the new ones off the back of that as as sort of act and then there are all sorts of other ones which basically just become a bit of uh, alphabet soup so there's rebt there's fast act or fact there's uh uh, cft compassion focused therapy so there's there's lots of different ones and and what you'll end up often i think most sports psychologists will maybe have one that kind of is their broad foundation that's their maybe kind of go-to and then they may but they may sort of pluck from others as and when um but broadly a lot of those ones are the ones that tend to sort of be a little bit more kind of okay we're we're evidence-based we like the idea of sort of using scales and screenings and things so that we can kind of determine progress in a slightly more scientific way and i think that then lends itself particularly to kind of performance domains where that would that would be how generally the rest of a sports science team would be appraised right they, mm. you, know, you don't get the physio just kind of go, oh it seems better he says he feels better yeah and then you just kind of move on with that no you want to know well okay yeah. what's his return to play date uh so yeah so you talked about the newer approaches there that would be contrasted with older approaches that would be what more freudian so it's this idea you have of like lying on a sofa and talking about about your development as a, as a yeah for, for yeah i guess for, for one's word better phrase and yes i, I do think that the, well the, the newer older thing is perhaps a maybe that was a, a bit of a blunt uh, sure, sure. definition there or, or distinction um but yeah certainly that that sort of the idea that things are a little bit the the term more often used is kind of humanistic um and that's where it's a sort of slightly more subjective view of the world where you're kind of you're aiming for sort of essentially a slightly kind of uh, a slightly less clear defined i guess solution to it of just sort of feeling better about yourself um kind of feeling yeah a sort of sense of sort of overall well-being Mm. which so seems a bit more narrative based then it's sort of like talking to a person about 
their self-awareness and their and their feelings and their emotions and and moving towards a solution that way whereas the other one feels a little bit to me a little bit more scientific where you're saying well we'll do this and then reassess and see if there's been a, an improvement yeah I, th- I think broadly that's a, a fair way to kind mm. of summarize them and that's not to say that there aren't humanistic sure. sports psychologists sure, sure. out there and, and and all the rest of it but i think that's probably a, a decent rule of thumb so staying generic at the, uh, at the outset then, what would you say the job of the psychologist is, given that we've talked about what psychology is? What, what should a psych- psychologist be trying to achieve? So in terms of their ultimate goal, for the most part, certainly with one-to-one work, they're aiming for their own redundancy. Uh, so, <laughs> so you are always trying to get your, your yeah, and I think that's probably broadly true of, of most therapies is you're trying to sort of provide the tools to, to the person so that they can go away and use them and you know maybe they need a an infrequent sort of check-in just to make sure things are okay but um within more broadly than that there's you know it, it tends to be very contextual so whether you're working particularly at a, an individual level whether you're working more as a sort of team level squad level or potentially even working organizationally where you're actually trying to structure the entire you know within a football setting it might be sort of trying to make sure that the you know the first 11 and the all of the academy are all kind of pulling in the same direction potentially even playing the same types of styles of football or certainly that have they the same sort of values um in mind and all the rest of it so and how you can kind of create an environment that sort of allows people to really sort of thrive and excel uh, and you're sort of yeah that that then becomes one where you're dealing with the coaches the players and all the support staff as well um, mm, so it sounds very similar to other jobs in football clubs but just from a psychological point of view yeah yeah um, yeah, we had a lot of questions from listeners who wanted to talk about the, the difference between psychologists and sports psychologists. So um, someone whose Twitter name is lots of bees in a row said, I've been wondering for a while, what is the defining difference between a sports psychologist and a regular psychologist other than just working with athletes? So I think that's, they've almost answered the question themselves, I, I guess, to some <laughs> extent. You know, it does it does tend to be a bit more solution focused. So you tend to have someone who comes with a specific topic or, or, or I'm always loath to use the word issue, but you know, something that they're, they're aware of that they want to work on, work on. That's not always the case. And I'm, I'm also, I guess, keen at the outset to sort of say that, you know, sports psychology doesn't have to just be reactive. It doesn't have to just be about sort of solving problems or treating issues or anything like that it can also definitely be a sort of a proactive kind of additive uh skill set that's mm. kind of being used to sort of take people from good to great and great to world class or, or however you want to think about it um but when time is limited you do often end up working with the people who are like oh i feel like i'm not getting the most out of myself in the big games that that tends to be the way that it, it sort of breaks down in terms of what that actually means though you know, broadly, we're using the same types of skills and tools that that most other sort of psychologists, certainly if you come from one of the sort of disciplines that we spoke about. So if you're a CBT based sports psychologist, you'll be using the same theories and tools that any CBT psychologist would use almost regardless of the the, the, the topic or, or, or kind of area that you're working in. But you're just going to be using it in a way that is about, OK, well, I'm feeling a little bit unmotivated right now or my confidence feels low in these certain particular kind of situations or settings or, or whatever it happens to be. Well, I mean, this is going to be presumably how long is a piece of string type answer, but what, what would you say that you might expect a sports psychologist day to look like working within a club? Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I was conscious walking in here today to try and avoid just saying it depends as the answer to every sure, single sure. question. Um, you might need a klaxon for that <laughs> um, or something. But yeah, so, it, but it does. And, and you know, I think particularly within professional football where there's still a kind of an element where the, you know, the manager sets the tone hugely for the structures kind of potentially within an organization and, and or certainly how those structures actually interact with the manager and the decision makers and the players, you know, within that squad. I think there's a, a huge amount of variation around that as well. So there's, there's, you know, you probably do have, there will be some clubs out there where you will have, you know, uh, the sports psychologist will be readily available sort of every day that the, the players are there and at the training, they can stop in or the psychologist will kind of come and seek them out. I think often 
the, the sort of the meal times tend to be sort of relatively kind of easy access when people are feeling a little bit kind of uh, sort of more off the clock and the sports psychologist can kind of potentially sort of just wander around and be available. Um, but then there will probably be others where potentially they're a little bit more removed, I guess, from from the sort of day-to-day ongoings, but it's it's more a case of they would report into potentially the head of sports science. The head of sports science might be then reporting into a director of football who's then sort of reporting back to the manager or whatever. And so there might be a slightly more kind of convoluted route there. Um, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, it does kind of depend a lot on, on how that setup works. But um, yeah, there, you know, there will definitely be face-to-face work with with the players themselves. It will That will just often be a, a case of like, is that sort of strongly encouraged? Is it a kind of case-by-case basis? Is it, uh, you know, is the sports psychologist having to kind of sit down next to them in the team canteen and kind of tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, I don't think we've ever spoken before. Or are they kind of able to kind of come and find them in a relatively discreet way? Um, you know, a lot of that then depends yeah, on the on the setup, the the internal structures and, and also potentially even the, the sort of the facilities as well as to whether there's, you know, where, where the, the players tend to kind of literally physically spend their time. Will there be group sessions at all? Yes, I think that's probably one of the things that that's the most sort of common would be at least sort of trying to have some sort of um yeah input on some of that that would although again that probably depends on the the manager and how i guess perhaps how how tight a ship they want to have um that you know having said that you know there are also definitely i i know of sports psychologists who've worked with within teams and organizations where you know they they report directly into the manager and they're very much you know if the manager is sort of keen on the concept of sports psychologist uh, sports psychology and they have a very close working relationship and therefore that access to sort of actually the sports psychologist will be really kind of on hand will be giving those kind of group sessions on a regular basis will kind of potentially be in the changing rooms before matches at halftime that kind of thing as well so uh, but it it does as with so much it does unfortunately depend <laughs> we had a question from david beffer who said have you seen ted lasso and what did you think of the depiction of the sports psychologist on that show i've not watched the show so i'm in your hands here so i'll, I'll confess i've only seen the first two seasons and the, the second season is where the the sports psychologist uh, rocks up i think the the answer to this question I, I will give is as two sentences and i will let people perhaps draw their own conclusions uh the first is ted lasso as a character was kind of developed to be uh, very very different to the sort of classic Premier League manager sentence number one sentence <laughs> number two is inadvertently or perhaps intuitively he's quite good at sports psychology like I said <laughs> those two are out there as sentences when they then decided to kind of give him a bit of a sort of uh, a, a protagon- antagonist to sort of bounce off they brought in the sports psychologist mm-hmm. um which was a little bit strange watching it because you're like, well, he's actually already pretty decent at that. And that's not to say that you can't still have a sports psychologist there. It's always nice to have a slightly different voice, putting it in slightly different ways, reinforcing the same messages. Um, But what they then did, because it's a TV TV show, right, is they actually set up that character to be sort of the antithesis of Ted. Mm -hmm. And so the sports psychologist comes across as very aloof, quite cold quite reserved there's a scene i think perhaps even in the first episode where she's introduced where she comes and sort of observes the training session and does so sort of in full kind of just in civvies she's in a sort of big kind of overcoat looking for want of a better word maybe a very sort of gender loaded word but she's looking a bit frumpy very serious and she's sort of sat in the very highest tier of seating within the stands you know looking on very coldly and I think that's probably pretty much a kind of textbook what not to do as a sports psychologist. <laughs> and and every sports psychologist I know of who's, you know, well, whatever situation they work in would be there in the team kit on the touchlines, even if they're not necessarily actively involved in sort of the drills and things would, would be very obviously present um, and kind of close to the action and, and making themselves look available, look willing to talk, you know, and all the rest of it. So. What impact do you think that public representations of sports psychologists can have on on your job? Have, have you ever come across scenarios where you feel as though you're having to on or on on teach things that <laughs> that people have picked up? I I think it's nice to see it represented at all. Um, and I guess the one thing I do also like is is that at least that 
sports psychologist is is I think I'm pretty sure she's a doctor so she's she's got a doctorate somewhere so she's you know she's she's well trained one hopes in sports psychology um the I think the 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 bigger question probably is just about the sort of the the long-standing stigma around mental health and opening up to that and I and I think there is there's quite a lot of variation from one sport to another there's also a very big generational shift that's happening there um but i think to perhaps massively oversimplify but you know uh, football's probably one of the sports where that stigma is still perhaps stronger than it might be in others um so that's probably more a case of trying to kind of uh, knock down those barriers and, and therefore actually having a sports psychologist in ted lasso who then you know well she ends up with her own office again perhaps living in the world of of tv fiction she ends up with her own office um but you know actually the players come and talk to her and open up and see benefits from that so actually in that sense that's probably quite a helpful uh, kind of yeah bit of representation anecdotally over the course of your time as a sports psychologist have you seen attitudes to mental health and, and psychology being maybe relaxed a little bit i think probably yes and i i guess actually it's maybe not so much over my time but perhaps with the clients that i work with when i work with older clients they might be less willing to open up about certain things or maybe there's just a little bit of having to kind of win them over a bit more um one of the things that you know i'll, I'll often sort of just get asked by mates like, oh man it must be really hard when you're stuck kind of opposite a sort of a 15 year old boy who's you know and you're asking them about their feelings and actually sometimes they're the easiest like they genuinely are you know i think there has been a really big shift and, and i think it's just being part of that is that mental health is just a much bigger topic anyway and i think there is also just a a bit more of an understanding that if you really want to make it in these hyper competitive sports including football obviously is you know you, you kind of want to take the resources where you can and if if sports psychology is one of the areas where you can make those little marginal gains then you know you, you'd kind of be foolish to to sort of turn your nose up at it so yeah i think with those younger clients who potentially are of that sort of newer generation you, you can see those differences i'm going to jump forward on the running order a little bit because i think we're talking about the role of sports psychologists. And I think everyone falls into this trap of thinking the sports psychologist is going to sit down with players who are struggling uh, and, 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 and help, help them out. So I think maybe we should start with that because I think that's where the, the listeners may expect us to go. But we had a listener question that you initially didn't really want to talk about. <laughs> and that was from actually friend of the podcast, Ruben Pinder, who, who has been on this podcast on a number of occasions. He simply asked, tongue-in-cheek, no doubt, why did Kane miss that penalty against France? This is the big sort of topic that I think a lot of people think sports psychologists, right? Um, the, 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 the what's what's it, what's the famous sports psychologist Steve Peters Steve Peters yeah this this kind of thing right it's like you want you want to get your players into this this scenario where you're able to um, where you're able to almost sit above emotions and not worry about what what's going on around you you want to be completely in tune with 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 the football you score the penalty um, this is what I think most people think of when they think of sports psychology. And this is a topic that you've actually specialised on during your career and your PhD is on this topic. And this is the topic of choking. So let's start off with an easy question. What is choking? <laughs> uh, if that were an easy question, um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't need to be doing any research on it. Um, definitions in, in psychology in general are really tricky, right? Because you're trying to sort of neatly summarize the human experience and you're kind of trying to do so in you know a dozen words or so um and that's always always tricky to do so to my mind uh choking would be something along the lines of a sort of you know a really sort of borderline catastrophic underperformance and in quite a kind of uh, a, an acute way right so it's a sort of a very temporary contextual underperformance that is yeah really sort of um out of character um and certainly would be kind of out of any sort of if you if you expect that you've kind of got a medium an average performance and you kind of got a kind of bit of volatility around that you'd be talking well outside of the, the sort of expected range not to, if that's not too mathematical um so i would partly question whether even a penalty can be considered choking under pressure sure, sure. Uh, you know because you know you there's an xg of whatever it is 0.79 <laughs> right so that does mean that you're going to miss some right so is it 
is it definitely a catastrophic underperformance to not score that penalty? Who's to say, right? Mm. Um, and perhaps the only person on earth who could say is Harry Kane himself. Um, so, you know, choking as a as a kind of uh, a phenomenon, I think, is is pretty well regarded as as existing, right? It's something that a lot of sports people have experienced, where they, you know, in a certain moment, they kind of can barely perform even the most basic of skills uh, and really go to pieces. It's just a case of then trying to sort of summarize that neatly in a definition, but also then how do you use that? And how can you, from a research perspective, how can you then recreate those situations to try and test what causes Mm -hmm. choking, what helps prevent choking, what helps, you know, if you're in that sort of mode, how can you break out of it? So that's a lot of where the the sort of the research that, that I've kind of, read up and, and, and done is around sort of trying to understand essentially sort of what different definitions are out there mm. and how those have been, the technical word is kind of operationalized, how those have been used in those research sure. situations to try and understand the phenomenon better. I think maybe the mainstream account of what happens in those scenarios is that you, when you're a sports player at the highest level, so much of what you do is just almost un, unaware. And what happens when you're choking is you're, you try and raise something that you just do naturally to the level of self-awareness. Uh, is, that, is that a good definition or is that one of the ones that you're, you're yeah, working it, against? Yeah. It, it's spot on. It's, so actually, the, the, there is a specific word for almost exactly what you've just described there, which is reinvestment. Um, and I think coming back to the, the original question that I was initially reluctant to answer, right, but why did, why did Kane miss that penalty, is in those stressful moments, you, you're exactly right. You know, these are people who have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours honing these skills they are completely second nature to them completely automatic in certain moments of extreme pressure do they try and essentially bring more conscious attention to what they're doing than is actually helpful and that actually causes them to essentially almost revert from being an expert who can do these things automatically you almost fall into a sort of novice territory where you've actually broken it down into the constituent parts mm-hmm. so if you sort of were to think about like okay well rather than hurricane just kind of putting the ball down on the spot or a footballer putting the ball down on the spot or a golfer preparing for their swing instead of just doing it and letting the sort of muscle memory take over they actually start to think okay well what am i going to try and do here how am i going to do this differently what do i need to be doing where am i planting my foot where am i how am i going to move my my sort of hips how am I going to do this how am I going to do that and you've actually taken something that actually they could do practically in their sleep and they've they've now made it much more mechanical Mm. therefore much more clunky they've taken one process score a penalty or hit the golf ball and they've broken it down into dozens or even hundreds of sort of separate stages and each now all of a sudden each of those stages is susceptible to failure and so then you you end up yeah not not executing anywhere near the standard that you would expect them to yeah and look uh, as someone who goes on podcasts a lot i could tell you that something as simple as speaking to another person which you just do all the time right as soon as you have a microphone in front of you and you're expected to say profound things it can become very very difficult i presume that's in the same sort of realm yeah absolutely and and there's a i think a lot of um everyday examples you know whether it's sort of tie you know if you if someone asked you how do you tie your own shoelaces I think most people would really struggle to do it. And actually, if they were then asked to sort of, a lot of the experiments on reinvestment ask people to essentially sort of talk through their actions as they're doing them. So if, if someone sort of stood over you and was like, oh, teach me how to tie your own shoelaces, you'd you'd potentially struggle because actually your, your fingers just do it naturally, automatically. And, and similarly, you know, learning how to drive a car, you know, learning how to tie a tie. These are the kinds of things where actually when you break them down and give them that conscious attention, it becomes really, really tricky to remember, well, what is the specific order I do and how do I do them accurately enough to actually make this work? Because, yeah, you're just doing it through that sort of muscle memory at this point. Interestingly, I was doing a PhD in philosophy and focusing on the concept of subjectivity, what it means to experience the world perceptually. Um, One of the big philosophers in that area is a guy called Charles Taylor. And one of the things that he often used to say is you couldn't couldn't learn how to uh, ride a bike by reading a book. It's the same kind of idea there, right, which is often when you're trying to learn these embodied uh, actions that we're talking about here, you have to learn by doing it. You yeah. can't learn it by having the theoretical aspect in your head. Uh, and I think, you know, this 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 all ties into the, the same kind of idea that actually what what athletes are doing is trying to embody 
learning rather than necessarily have head head learning as well. But following up from that, we had a question from False Pivot on Twitter who said, what is necessary to create an environment in which players play without fear? How can you help players that choke under pressure? So what what is the solution to these sorts of problems that players can come up against? I think from a, a practical perspective, a lot of it will come back to essentially trying to sort of keep keep game day relatively simple you know and if you if you think about it in terms of of the one of the elements around the sort of the the automatic execution that 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 we just spoke about there of of kind of when you reach that expert level is not only is it much more consistent it also requires less brain power essentially right and and we do have a, a limited amount of kind of cognitive processing power and in a game like football which is so complicated right you you need to be aware of where you are where the ball is where all of your teammates are all of your opponents the conditions blah 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 right the the processing that's required to accurately make decisions in those in that sort of infinite number of different kind of contexts is mind-blowing if you're also overthinking how do I play this two yard pass? There's no hope for you, right? And so the one of the benefits of being able to execute the skills automatically is it frees up the brain to do the other processing of the situation stuff, uh, situational stuff around you. And so trying to limit, I think, the, the technical feedback that's happening potentially immediately before and during matches and just sort of saying like, listen, you, you know how to do that, right? You You've been kicking a ball since you were, probably a toddler right in most cases for professional footballers right don't overthink that element you just need to be you know trying to kind of keep the instruction simple right but what we do want you to do is just be a little bit more you know front-footed or trying to spot that player a little bit more often or trying to make that run broadly into that part of the pitch a bit more often or a bit less often and if you're trying to just sort of keep it reasonably simple in those terms rather than a kind of massive breakdown of you're going to pass it here 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 and here and you need to be keeping your hips like this and you're planting your foot like that and and so on is that why pep guardiola gives those instructions at the end of games then is he's being a, a good sports psychologist then i Potentially, yeah, um, and I think you know, it's 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 interesting because I, I think a lot of a lot of sports psychology ends up being relatively intuitive in in some senses. A, a lot of it's a phrase I end up using a lot in the work that I do. Is you know this isn't necessarily rocket science. It's not going to be revolutionary necessarily, but it is going to help, right? And so actually, it's just a case of yeah, some some of these you know a lot of these elite managers, right? They they don't get to the position they're at without having a reasonable understanding of sure. what's going to get people performing at their best. Uh, not to say there perhaps isn't some room for improvement, but you know, there's, there is kind of, you know, uh, an understanding. Oh, okay. Well, actually, if I'm giving this information to them at half time, they all start getting really clunky and awkward and they can't execute anything. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'll save it until, uh, until the full time whistle has gone and, and then I'll kind of <laughs> load them with that information. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've talked a lot about choking here. How much do you think that actually happens at the highest level of elite football? Because it's something that I think golf is one that's often used, right? Where they talk about yips, where a golfer is standing over a putt and then suddenly they lose the ability to, to be able to play the shots that they're expected to play. And I suppose similar to penalties, okay, it's hard to say a player is choked for a penalty because they only will take one or two in a game. With putting, like you're doing a fair amount of it when you're going on a round, and it can inf- it massively impacts your 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 performance. Do you think that we don't actually see that much choking at the highest level of football? There's certainly a a, a a case of that. I think, yeah, and and I think you're completely right. So a lot of the yeah, the, if you kind of look for the sort of the the popular examples out there on the the internet of like yeah, choking examples, they they do come overwhelmingly from sports like golf and tennis which are individual sports so there's no team context to to sort of hide behind or or confuse things and yeah there's a a repetitive nature right where you've built a massive lead and then so they've been performing in one way and then you go to pieces and yeah they can't get the ball over the net or can't can't put a ball um within football i think it's it's potentially a little harder to to identify just because it is hard to know whether it's one person having an absolute stinker and or, or not, and whether it's the whole team kind of being a little bit dysfunctional. I do think it, it almost certainly happens, but it would be f- for me, certainly with the, the definitions that I, I like to use for, for choking, I think it would have to be perhaps starting a match in one particular way and then something happening within that, that, that completely throws throws you off and so you'd have a player who is fine for maybe the first 20 minutes first half maybe first 60 minutes then there's a kind of a a clear you know massive deterioration in their in their sort of quality perhaps because they actually missed a they missed a shot you know missed an opportunity that wasn't choking but has maybe now sort of kind of set the wheels in motion in their head and now they are overthinking everything and and sort of now getting it more clunky you know, that that breakdown has happened sure something that happens a lot more often is that a, a player can underachieve uh, and then fans as aaron hanlon uh, says can often interpret this interpret this sorry as a lack of motivation uh, they don't care they're happy to collect a paycheck stealing a living etc um aaron says this seems wrong to me but what is usually going on mental health wise for chronic underperformers in, in that sense so this is less choking i think and more uh, just being out of your rhythm as, a, as an athlete. Yeah, and, and I think that is a, a helpful definition, right? It's the difference between choking, which I think most people would agree is within a match or, or something, this is kind of a longer-term slump. Um, I think I, I, I agree with the, the, the sort of premise of the question. I, I certainly think I would draw a distinction between unmotiv- unmotivated and demotivated. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who gets through academy football and makes it as a professional footballer out the other end, kind of not just Premier League, but, you know, that that is an unbelievably grueling journey. You have to be highly, highly motivated, like, you know, unbelievably motivated to get through that. If something then goes wrong, that perhaps is not necessarily because there's a kind of an innate defect in that person, right? It's perhaps contextual. I think there is also though, you know, we as human beings, you know, as, as a society or whatever, um, do tend to think of motivation as quite a sort of a static trait. Oh, that is a motivated person or that is not a motivated person. Whereas I think it's a lot more dynamic than that. And also potentially contextual, you know, so people might be highly motivated in some areas of their life and not in others and motivated by different incentives in some areas of their life than in others. If you're talking about a footballer, you know, coming through the systems that they have, I think getting to a point where they they have felt that motivation drop off, I would classify more as demotivated rather than unmotivated. And then the question becomes, okay, so what, what has happened there? And it, it may be that it is kind of a little bit more internal in that, you know, they may have really thrived on being a big fish in a small pond, you know, having been the best 
under six, the best under seven, you know, all the way, all the way up. And now all of a sudden they're in the, the senior squad and they're surrounded by other individuals who are better than them, more experienced than them, physically more, you know, a, a, a stronger, fitter, faster, all the rest of it. That may be what's happened. Or it could be that, you know, there are just sort of elements within the coach-athlete relationship that aren't quite working. There may be sort of broader sort of broader kind of uh, elements within the sort of the the culture more generally within within the club or within that squad as well. So, mm. it, again, <laughs> lots of different factors. That <laughs> it depends, yeah, it depends. Indeed. Um, yeah, and I, and I can attest to that because I, I feel as though I'm quite a motivated person when I'm sitting down to watch my fifth game of football for the day. But when it comes to doing my laundry, I feel very unmotivated. So I suppose it's a, it's a, it is a complex um, uh, concept. Um, another thing that we had a question about, and I, I think this is this is interesting because I think we'll may, maybe go off on a little bit of a tangent after this, but we had a question from Chris who said, how do you tame hot-headedness or head loss in a player? Off, opposite to building confidence, how do you focus on those hot-headed players? And we can we can come to the answer of that question, how you would how you answer it. But I thought it was maybe to start off just, I would say not everyone is coded in the same way when it comes to something like motivation. So speaking personally, I feel as though I was someone who performed better when I was a little bit pissed off during games. Um, how much scope is there when you're dealing with players to, to sort of get a sense of what style of, 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 of personality they are, how their psychology functions and, and how that can impact motivation? Is that presumably there, again, you're going to say it depends, but presumably there is a spectrum of, of different types of, of, of player types in that sense. For sure. And I think one of the, that's one of the really tricky elements about sort of sports psychology is, I think very often when you're working within a sort of an organized a, a kind of organizational or, or squad level and potentially if you're doing that sort of the kind of the group work that, that we kind of mentioned earlier you're going to try and go with the sort of the, the 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 options that are kind of most likely to benefit the most people in the squad and do the least harm to the others right so you're kind of balancing all of those factors which means that you potentially aren't going to you know, well kind of you're definitely not going to provide something super useful to every single person in that squad, right? And there will be some people who on that particular, you know, and, and then you get into the specifics of, okay, well, today we're going to talk about confidence. Okay, there may be some people in the room whose confidence is absolutely wonderful or some person's motivation might be absolutely spot on, right? And so they're just not, they don't kind of even necessarily need to be in the room if if that's a sort of more, how do we redress, you know, redress an issue here? Um, that being said, you know, there there are, I think there are those distinctions. If you can work one-on-one -on -one with those with those individual athletes and sort of get a sense of, okay, well, what is it that that's going to kind of, that does spur you on? What does help you get into your best, you know, the, the mindset that's going to work best for you? That's, that is going to be a very kind of um, a personal kind of exploration. And, and a lot of the work when I sort of work with athletes about sort of trying to develop essentially sort of pre-match routines and things like that is how do you, you know, is, is essentially the first step of that is reflecting back on their own performances and going, well, what, when have you kind of surprised yourself by outperforming your average? What was it that kind of triggered that? And for some people you're, you're spot on, right? It's the, something's happened early in the match that, that's kind of really rankled them. It's got their, their blood up and the, they're kind of, they go, you know, the, the red mist descends and they play a blinder for others. They've gone for a you know, early shower two minutes after that, because they've gone in two footed. So there's elements within that that are going to be sort of tailored to each person. So what, if you're working within a group scenario, you're sort of asking people to reflect on those and then figure out, okay, so what is the kind of combination of psychological characteristics that's going to be most helpful for you to get ready for a match what can you be doing before the match what are you doing at half time to get yourself into that zone where you perform best and, and understanding that that zone is going to be very personal to you so you don't need to be doing the same thing as the guy sat next to you in the in the changing room because they might have a very different mindset that they're aiming for you mentioned confidence there um i was interested to hear your thoughts actually on there's certain situations where maybe a lack of confidence could be considered a positive trait where it could spur you on to, I don't know, practice more or, or um, yeah, improve as, as, as a person. Do you think that having high confidence is always beneficial in a high performance environment like sport? Is there any context in sport where you think maybe a, a lack of confidence could translate into good production output? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I've ever... <laughs> 
ever really thought about it in that way. My instinct is probably to say probably not in as much as actually similar to the the question just before about you know but with the idea of sort of if a bad thing happens and it sparks a good performance or here Mm. a sort of having a lack of confidence and that sort of creating that will to continue to to improve generally the avoiding a bad thing can be really really motivating or can be very effective um but it tends to be quite short-termist sure so that might work for a little while but it probably won't and it may also definitely have you know sort of knock-on effects right so you may suddenly train like a demon because you're absolutely convinced you don't you've you know got imposter syndrome and you don't (laughs) deserve to be there it's then gonna be really hard when you sort of cross the line on match day to go yeah no it's all right i've got this (laughs) i know what i'm doing right and so i think probably trying to bring that sort of the the motivation more around a sort of a rewards focus like seeking the benefits of whether that's setting longer term goals of like you know you want to win this or play for that team or earn this much a week or whatever the right incentive might be for you or if it's just you know i think ideally then actually beyond that is okay, and what are you getting out of it on a sort of session-by-session basis? What are the things that you're actually enjoying in terms of sort of learning your craft, developing yourself, and and all those sort of aspects as well? And to come back to the question from Chris, how do you tame hot-headedness or head loss in players? I guess that's about dampening down uh, emotions rather than lifting them up. Yes, probably. Um, I think, although... I would be keen to ask the the player first, you know, um, not you know, not to totally cop out on it, because you know, I think there there is also a, an argument where potentially there is almost a sort of sense of like if you are if you're feeling, I guess, panicked or, or kind of insecure about either your own performance or the, the the position that the team is in in that moment, you know, are you making those sort of rash challenges out of a sort of is it a kind of because you are like overly kind of topped up on anger you know, or, or sort of like the the kind of the the, the hot-headedness or is it that actually you're you're under on confidence in yourself mm-hmm. confidence in your teammates so are you kind of having to lunge in there because you don't trust your center-back partner to actually you know get in behind you afterwards if you don't get the guy you know so you'd rather just bring the guy down and see what happens because actually you don't trust those people around you or potentially that you don't trust yourself to be able to follow on you know if you do then get beaten um so i think there's i'd want to kind of understand a bit more about like well what to, to the extent that you're aware of what's going on what what are you kind of thinking what is driving that hot-headedness or apparent hot-headedness and then you kind of go from there um We've talked a lot about the psychological aspect when it goes wrong with players. And uh, mm-hmm. as we've said, that, that tends to be the area that people immediately go to in their heads when they think of sports psychology. But presumably a big part of your job is also keeping players in a good place. And, uh, you know, uh, the same way that physiotherapist departments in clubs will be obviously treating players who are injured, but they're also trying to keep the players at, at the highest level possible as well. So what what does that look like from the point of view of a sports psychologist? It, it how much of your your job is actually based around keeping people in the in the good place rather than trying to pull them out of the bad place? The short answer is not enough. <laughs> or you know, I I think a lot of sports psychologists would love to have the time and the resource to do more of that kind of proactive stuff and the yeah the sort of really additive things of of sure. keeping people where they want to be and and slowly enhancing that within. Within some settings, that definitely does happen. Um, I think when you when you have a sort of a club or an organisation who's potentially not had any sports like before, you almost always the you know the the first job is the firefighting, it's the problem solving. As you become more embedded, then you can start to kind of maybe sort of tweak the more sort of structural things. I think uh, a lot of it becomes around sort of trying to create environments in which people feel comfortable to sort of take slight risks and 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 fail you know there's a kind of it, it, there's sort of a bit of a kind of 
the slogans that come out of sort of startup sometimes of sort of being willing to fail fast and learn from it and kind of move on from it there's there's sort of elements around that and that very often gets sort of labeled as kind of psychological safety so actually knowing that if you've gone out there you've tried a thing potentially because the manager has specifically tried you know told you to try it it's not quite gone to plan because you're not used to doing it that way but you're not going to come in and get the hairdryer treatment from the same manager who told you to go out there and try it in the first place or, and, but also that you're not going to get that from the players around you they're not going to drop their heads and so it sort of it becomes you know but you can imagine that that takes quite a lot of time to build that kind of camaraderie and, and trust and also that sort of sense of like oh, okay yeah I'm 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 okay with the fact that we actually had quite a promising move there and it's broken down and I was waiting for the cross that they've messed up but I'm not going to get frustrated about it because I appreciate that what they were trying to do was a bit different and a bit new. I think what a lot of what we're talking about here is, you know, players at the the top of their game, at the peak of their careers. We had a lot of questions about the psychologist's role at the academy level. Mm-hmm. I think this is really interesting from the point of view that actually we're not just talking about keeping young players mm-hmm. in a good mind space, but also talking about actually developing them as psychological subjects in the first place. So, um, we had a question from the fantastically named Arsenal FC Taylor's version. Uh, what role does psychology and mental health care play at the youth academy level? How do you help young players, especially those with a lot of early hype, to deal with pressure and scrutiny? And I think, there's, you, as I say, there's two levels there. There's the fact that you want to help them at, at the moment that they're at, but also this longer-term vision where you want to think, OK, this player is interesting from the point of view that they're still developing their personality and still developing their psychological profile and decisions we make at this point in their career could impact them in the, in the long run. So for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, there's, I think a, a lot of, um, a, a lot in there that, that is really important to, to, to sort of understand and, and kind of, um, did I really get on board with that? The, the footballing pyramid, you know, through the academy structure is 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 really brutal, um, and there is there is definitely there are moves in the right direction. So all category one academies have to have some psychology provision. Uh, so that's you know in order to achieve that accreditation, which is the you know the the, the highest level within within England, um, you have to have a, a sports psych on your staff. The What's then required of that sports psychologist is pretty vague. So I think there's there's probably a little bit of room for improvement about what what they then go on to do. Um, and but there is there is definitely an, an embedding of sports psychology, or at least the sort of first steps of of embedding sports psychology in an in an academy environment. And and there is a sort of move to just sort of see it as one of the kind of the default sports science resources that any academy should have and hopefully that gets rolled out across the other categories as well um there is though you know still you know there there are so many kids playing within these setups and very often you'll have one you know sports psychologist who's responsible for every element of it from the you know one-to-one work the group work the organizational structural stuff they're doing the reactive stuff they're doing the proactive stuff yeah so it it gets very kind of time consuming um and that also it's it's very often not the best paid job in sports psychology so very often you'll get people who are still quite early in their career taking that role on which isn't obviously to say that they're they're bad at that but they probably don't have a ton of experience in 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 doing quite such a vast variety of roles so there's definitely room for improvement for for what that provision looks like but i think it's still really good that it is happening and hopefully that is also helping to sort of break down that stigma that exists where you know because you've had people who've kind of like they've seen you know the staff sports psych kind of wandering around in their tracksuit since they were in the kind of under whatever's that they they just sort of see that as part and parcel of being a footballer being in an academy being in a professional setup as a as a senior so there's there's definitely um steps in the right direction there that being said i think one of the you know one of the sort of the the critical areas and i think this is probably sort of i i would hope this isn't too controversial is you know obviously the 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 kind of the 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 process through which as you know those kids kind of who don't make it 
are released you know that's obviously a massive life-changing moment for those those individuals and you know and, and football is not the only one only sport where this happens right it's like oh, okay well you're off the program so now we're also obviously going to remove all of the resources that were were around you as well including the sports psychology so actually that transition you'd love to have a sports psychologist who could try and help them kind of build a bit more of like okay well what is your identity outside of football how do you kind of go from here what are some tools that might serve you well obviously you know with i think there are some academies who potentially provide a, a small amount of that you know they're not required to but they do um but yeah you'd, you'd kind of love to see a little bit more of that just to kind of potentially mm. sort of ease that transition so it's starting to see sports psychologists across all of the areas of, of football clubs so we had some questions actually about the role of sports psychologists in the recruitment process as well so lee m direct says do sports psychologists play any role in recruitment regarding players when a player is scouted is there likely to be say a psychological profile done on a player to say this guy would do well this club with these players and this manager it's a really interesting question i as far as i'm aware i don't know of of anyone where that that is definitely the case um or certainly not where i guess not where the kind of day-to-day sports psychologist is being kind of actively invited to sort of past comment or, or whatever presumably that's just because it's hard to do that kind of psychological profiling without just sitting down and talking to the player quite and and if you wanted to do it in any any kind of scientific kind of way where you were like okay well we've we've done we've administered this survey or whatever you know to to all of our current squad and our manager and our assistant managers and this is you know you'd, you'd then need your potential transfer target to sit down and fill in the same scale to to then cross-reference which i'm guessing would be kind of a bit weird right if you were doing that before an agreement was even sort of in place um so i think pragmatically it would be it would be tricky to do uh i suspect also for a lot of sports likes that would feel maybe ethically a little bit kind of like a bit of a gray area as well Mm. um to be kind of yeah, making those sorts of decisions based on 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 that. You know, I think even even those psychologists who are more scientific minded kind of see see the world more objectively. Most people are willing to admit that those those scales and tests and and screenings and things, you have to take them with a bit of a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. So if you were making those decisions based off that, I think that would that would potentially be kind of quite a risky way of of of, of going about things. Mm. So yeah. We're starting to talk a lot about player welfare now, I think. We've talked about kids being dropped off programs and and having to deal with that. Um, There's another, I think, interesting tension in in professional sport, uh, particularly in terms of when it it comes to player welfare, and that is, you know, the the complex relationship between winning and uh, and, uh, welfare, I suppose. So we've had a, a couple of questions about this. So Darcy says, how does a psychologist balance helping maximise performance with the well-being of players that they work with? I imagine this can often be a flashpoint. Uh, and Aaron Daniel says, have you ever come to the conclusion that football or the pressure of playing professional football is the root cause of a player's unhappiness? If so, how do you balance the player's well-being versus the ambitions of the player and the club? What if quitting is the key to happiness and fulfilment? And that tension exists, I think, again, across uh, a lot of areas in a football club, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, ph- uh, physiology as well. Um, physiotherapists often have to make decisions um, where they're they're telling a coach you shouldn't play this player really, but the coach is going to say, well, my job depends on it and the, the performance of the team can depend on it, leads you into this very tricky kind of areas. So I'm interested in your in your thoughts on that, how you get the balance right, particularly when it's you would say that the the prime aspect of of, of a uh, psychologist is probably focusing on player welfare, having the player in a good place, in that kind of environment where there is that tension between sometimes winning is prioritised over actually does it matter if we're going to have negative consequences on players? So I think it's an it's an excellent question. Uh, it definitely there definitely can be a tension there. I I, I suspect it actually may be less common than it might initially seem mm-hmm. you know, if for no other reason than you know at its simplest you know generally 
a happy sportsman is a successful or happy sports person is a successful sports person and and vice versa so generally if you've got someone who's feeling pretty good about themselves they will go out and play their sport in a really sure. good way um and which isn't there with the physiological side of things right because you can be doing things that actively are d damaging you and playing at the high height of your career exactly so i think there probably is a little bit of a difference sure. there potentially between the psychology and, and the other sort of sports sciences you know and and actually i think the other part of that is you know if if what you're thinking about is okay well this person you know very often a bit of an oversimplification for sure but if you're thinking about what it takes to be sort of you know how you're kind of almost kind of diagnosing someone who's who's not quite there where they want to be psychologically it's it's like, okay well they're training at this level and they're not translating it into matches well pulling them from the matches isn't necessarily going to help them right you, you what you're going to try and do as the sports psychologist there is give them skills tools to to try out but those will take practice right psychological skills are skills like any other the more you practice them generally the more effective they're going to be or certainly there's going to be a learning process right so you're going to need to use those contextually you know, there are slight ways around it but for the most part you know there is no way really to replicate the pressure of a second penalty against your home keeper in a quarterfinal of a world cup other than doing it right and so you you kind of figure out how you do that you know as you go along and so therefore actually sometimes you do you do just have to have to play through it that's not to say that it it's never an issue and that can definitely be a, a quite a tricky tension to to sort of overcome I think a lot of times the, the the sort of the option there, psychologists and sports psychologists, we we kind of talk a lot about our philosophies and our sort of values and things to sort of guide us in some of these tricky moments and, and understanding, having a pretty clear idea in your own head, essentially sort of who the who the client is, right? So is the client the, the footballer or is it the person who pays the bill, which is the club? So who who are you really working for? You know, are you working for the well-being of the player where you're going to say, listen, I think the best thing for you right now is to actually, yeah, you know, pull out of the situation because actually I think this is currently doing more harm than good. But that might not be what the manager and the, the rest of the club would like to, to hear. So that is, you know, but, but actually making that happen is really difficult. And again, we kind of come back to the question right early on about well, what is the role of one particular sports psychologist within one particular football club how much sway does that one psychologist have to make that decision or are they just gonna they pass it up the sports science chain and it kind of gets lost in amongst everything else and it turns out the player just sort of keeps underperforming until eventually they're sort of pretty broken uh so it's it's a tricky one to to navigate for sure when it does come around but i think probably slightly less common than than maybe it might might appear. Yeah, and it's certainly the case that things seem to be improving. I can think of a number of players in the last five years who have been, uh, I, I guess, PR'd as having had mental health problems and therefore taking a break, which would never have happened, I think, before five years ago. Um, so there's clearly that uh, buffer space within clubs to be able to accept that, that the mental health aspect is important to the performance of their players as well. One final question in the same sort of vein, but another aspect of modern life that can often affect player well-being is social media. Mm -hmm. um, so United Resurgent said, how would a sports psychologist approach a situation where the fan base has turned horribly toxic and out of proportion to the fact that it's a sport? Thinking of the abuse that Harry Maguire got as my example. Obviously, a lot of that can happen within the stadium, but the, the, the bigger arena where that's happening is in social media and it's never been easier I suspect for players to find out what the fans think of them than in in the present day so how do you deal with a player who is is being dragged on social media it's, a, it's an impossible <laughs> question I think I think a decent number of the the players kind of are a kind of you know that certainly their official accounts will be managed by their PR team so that that probably isn't them themselves um generally I think it's probably relatively safe to say that that you know social media is probably not great news for anyone's mental health uh I, you would if you thought you could you would probably try and get all your players to sort of never touch a social media platform again um whether that's realistic or not I don't know uh but I I, I think it is extremely hard and uh, and I actually think the 
the way that the social media stuff fuels the the stadium atmosphere, you know, the, the people who are kind of putting together the sort of the fail compilations of whichever player it is that the, the club's fan base has turned against that week, you know, and then that means that the first mistake they make next time out, the, you know, however many thousand people in the in the stadium all groan collectively, right? It, it That's really unhelpful. And, and actually, even if you've therefore, as a player, you've avoided the social media drag, but you're just trying to go about your business. And, and now you've made one simple mistake. No, no footballer is ever going to play a perfect 90 minute game, right? Everyone is going to have mistakes. And if the very first time you do that, the whole stadium's on your back, it's probably not going to set you up well to kind of bounce back from that. Or certainly it's going to make it a lot harder in most cases. You might get the occasional time where, uh, well, I'll show them and it actually helps them raise their game. But that's probably going to be a relatively short-term fix for the situation. So I think it is, it's it's really tricky. I think it's probably just part and parcel of the game at this point where you, you as the psychologist you're just trying to give the people the tools to build their confidence or build you know re- retain their motivation retain that sort of faith in the muscle memory and their ability to execute and remind them of the the things that they do do well as much as you possibly can and you know if you're getting that from your manager you're getting that from the sports like you're getting that from your teammates you're creating that sort of kind of collective atmosphere where people understand that and you know everyone's sort of reinforcing the same behaviors and kind of helping everyone build you know confidence in in a way of sort of almost just sort of identifying the evidence oh yeah no i'm actually pretty decent at this you know that's obviously going to help kind of to to sort of just try and offset you know because you know joe blogs has kind of written something nasty about you or put together yeah a compilation of you kicking the ball out (laughs) over and over and over again so well, Alex, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to me. I could have carried on for a little bit longer. I've still got other questions that we weren't able to get around to. I've really enjoyed hearing your expertise on this. For our listeners, if they want to find out more about what it is that you're doing, you work for a company called Optimize Potential, and their website is optimizepotentialsport.com, and you are contactable through there, I believe. But thank you so much for coming on, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a, a, a real treat. Cheers. Cheers.